Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about mutual bans on TV stations in China and the UK, a reshuffling of Russian diplomatic efforts, and lots and lots of naval activities all over the world, and what that means for the future. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so we'll start off with the thing that has been inundated in everyone here living in the states and that is the second trump impeachment trial which has ended in his acquittal which a lot of us could have predicted back when a number of senators i believe 45 of them basically voted to dismiss the articles before they even got to the senate um so 45 right there but uh, about two of them went to vote in favor of the impeachment, and by that I mean um, conviction, <clears throat> but they did not pass. Uh, it was a 57 to 43 vote, and while that may seem like it passed, um, the impeachment needs about a two-thirds vote to actually convict someone, and so... In a Senate which has 100 members, that would mean 66 would have to vote in favor of conviction for it to pass. But only 57 did, so it was straight to the acquittal. So there's that. A little little tiny lesson in U.S. politics, as corrupt as they are, <laughs> as clown showish as they are. Oh well. Well... But anyway, back on the topic of U.S. politics, we have Biden putting sanctions on the Burmese military. And for those unfamiliar, the Burmese military um, arrested the people who won the election in Burma on charges of election fraud and election interference and irregularities. So there's that. Very similar cases were made between their election and what we saw here in the U.S. So, uh, a bit of a sensitive topic for Americans right now, or at least the political class in America right now. Um, and a lot of other nations have effectively, they've weighed in on the issue, um, putting their support behind the candidate that won the election, um, we'll see what the Burmese military does moving forward. They have promised a return to civilian government, but they have deep suspicions about the election. Um, there is a potential conflict of interest. I brought this up as well when it first happened. Uh, given that the Burmese military is associated with the party that lost, um, so there is seemingly a potential conflict of interest. We'll have to see where everything goes moving forward. But, interesting thing to look at. And now we'll move on to the UK. Now, I talked about this in our preamble, but the UK has banned CCTV from their networks. And in response, China banned the BBC in China. Now, these are both um, state-backed um, television channels. 
the BBC being the British Broadcasting Channel, and CCTV. I actually don't know what CCTC, oh my goodness, CCTV stands for, but it is a Chinese broadcasting network. Um, obviously, the TV is going to stand for television, but I don't know what the second T, the second C stand for. Goodness, but either way, they've begun banning each other's TV channels as they've really started to come to odds with one another. The UK. I think it was either last week or the week before that, they basically amended their trade law so that they that would make it harder for them to trade with countries whom the UK believes to have committed genocide or human rights abuses. And I brought up that for the time being, that is directed straight squarely at China. Could be used at, uh, towards other countries in the future, but for right now, we know who they're talking about, even though they don't expressly say China. So we're seeing a bit of um, a breakdown in relations between the UK and China. We're also seeing the same between the UK and the EU. As the EU, um, a couple weeks ago, put a ban on UK shellfish imports. So they, they, they blocked uh, member states of the EU from importing shellfish from the United Kingdom. Uh, this was in response to many comparisons and criticisms um, over the vaccination rollout that was, well, handled very badly on the EU side. And there's been a lot of fallout in the wake of that. And um, it has yet to be measured right now. But if I had to guess, if I had to put money down, I would say it has fostered strong Eurosceptic um, views in the United, well, not the United, in the EU. And that's going to be a problem for the EU moving forward. And I really don't see a way out of this for the EU. Like, everything that happens just screws them over. And it's, oh, it's sad to watch, but it's, that's the truth. Everything that happens... Um, no matter how good they do, if the UK does okay, that it just screws them over as other member nations will go, hmm, maybe independence ain't all that bad. And, but here we have them bungling the vaccine rollout, and I brought up how the EU stepped in, um, to negotiate on behalf of the member states, um, how they were going to get their vaccines from AstraZeneca. Now, before that, the individual nations that are a part of the EU were negotiating their own uh, agreements to procure the vaccine. The EU stepped in, and now there's shortages. Now the United Kingdom, I believe, has more vaccinations uh, administered than the entire continent of Europe. And obviously when your population is not even close to the entire population of Europe and you still have more vaccinations, the UK gets closer, way closer proportionately to ending the COVID crisis than Europe. And that's not going to look good for Europe at all. And they're probably going to get hammered over the head with it by every Eurosceptic on the continent. It's just really bad time to be a... Um, uh, e pro-EU at the moment. Very rough time. Um, 
They the EU did drop the ban on shellfish earlier last week, but relations are still deteriorating very quickly. And a decent number of these instances that have caused the deterioration were provoked by the EU itself. So you have these um, semi, how do I put it? These passive aggressive moves by the EU that keep backfiring on it. Uh, these moves toward the UK. And I've, I guess I should take this moment to lay out why it is the EU really can't be friendly with the UK. Although we would, I'm pretty sure many in the UK would appreciate having a friendly relationship with the EU. And I'm sure many within the EU would appreciate having a friendly, cordial relation with the United Kingdom. The problem is that the EU leadership cannot do that. As it seems like a asshole-ish move, it seems like they're just being, um, well, bullying, bullies for no reason. But when you look at the position that the EU is in, they, being friendly isn't an option. Not if they want there to be an EU at all. Being friendly is not an option because the UK was a part of the EU, then the UK left. If the EU does well, that's great, unless there is an independent piece that has separated from the EU that is also doing well. Because it effectively proves to everyone else who is still a part of the EU that you don't need to be a part of the EU. That is a killer to the institution that is the EU, which is why they can't just let Britain go. They can't just let Brexit be, they, they just can't let it exist. They can't let bygones be bygones because that means the end of the EU. And we're already seeing that in the perpetual secession crisis that is befalling them. They are currently fighting tooth and nail to just to maintain unity within their member states and their actions toward but their actions toward the UK aren't helping either. So they're stuck in this paradox where if they don't deliberately screw over the UK, um the UK does well and member states will make the decision maybe leaving is okay, which is unacceptable if you're in the EU. But if they do what they have no choice but to do, which is to deliberately try to screw over the United Kingdom, well, a lot of Europe is very dependent on trade with the UK. So when you try to screw over the UK, you're going to screw over member nations and member states of the EU, namely Ireland. And there was a big issue about a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland which the EU themselves put up uh, temporarily, but they put it up when they started doing bans on British goods and British travel and the vaccines coming from Britain. The, I mean, no, not coming from Britain, but vaccines, when they put up the export ban on vaccines produced in Europe, that meant you couldn't, there was a hard border in Ireland where you couldn't send a vaccine across that border. There was a hard border which violated the treaty, the peace treaty between Northern Ireland and Ireland, which was a big point of contention in the Brexit negotiations. And there was a promise made by both sides that they wouldn't put up a hard border. And then the EU puts up a hard border. And they're screwing themselves. They, they have to engage 
in a not friendly way against the British, but every time they do that, they hurt themselves in the process. But if they don't, well, Britain's very existence puts them, their existence, into question. It's a paradoxical situation that I, for the time being, I struggle to see how the EU will get out of. And for the time being, the EU is going to suffer until they do. Um, we'll pray for them. But um, very important thing to look out for. But I guess we'll go back to China. Um, the UK is falling out with China. And it's not exactly getting better. The UK is involving itself more in the South China Sea. In its former imperial space. So there's also that to be on the lookout for. I'm sure China doesn't appreciate um, what the UK is doing, especially with regards to Hong Kong, where the UK was fast-tracking citizenship for Hong Kong citizens uh, on a British um, national basis, like a away from ho overseas British national. There we go. The OBN. So there's that. They're allowing people from Hong Kong to come to the UK on a fast-tracked citizenship. I'm pretty sure none of that China appreciates, and I'm sure they appreciate none of the UK's um, actions with regards to amending their trade law, specifically targeting uh, China's, well, genocide of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. None of that is appreciated. And China will probably find some way to fight back against the UK, but for now they're pretty busy kind of consolidating, or I guess taking advantage of their position right now would be a better term to describe it, because China, by effectively ignoring the, the fact that there was a virus, and pretending everything was fine, which some would argue everything is fine, but China has put up the impression that they got over the virus faster than everyone else. Their economy has made a full recovery. America is still on track for a full recovery, I believe so. Would have been faster if some of our governors had opened up as well. But regardless, China opened up faster, so their economy has recovered faster. And relative to everyone else around them, they are even stronger than they were before because no one else is at full strength yet because everyone else's economies, with the exception of Japan, everyone else's economies are still semi-locked down. Japan didn't really go for the lockdown approach, so that's why I exclude them. But China is kind of taking advantage of their position relative to everyone else. All ties back to the relative power of nations. Um... And they're taking advantage. They're instigating more disputes along their borders in the Himalayas. They're getting more aggressive in the South China Sea. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. And they're getting more belligerent and taking full advantage of the relative increase in strength that they have while they still have it. Because the vaccines are spreading like wildfire <laughs> almost as fast as the virus did. So China does have a bit of a time crunch before that power gap shrinks back to what it would usually be. Um, so for the time being, they are moving, they're mobilizing, and we'll see what they do, uh, if they do anything new, I should say, because they're doing a lot. They're getting into skirmishes with India in the Himalayas, and they're ramming 
uh, fishing boats in the South China Sea. So we'll see if they do anything new. Well, they're also flying jets over Taiwan. So a whole lot is what they're doing. But we'll see if they do anything new or if they escalate beyond what they usually do. So a lot to look out for. We'll come back to the South China Sea later on. But I will finish up with the rapid fire news. Um, Oman is currently seeking to reduce its dependence on foreign workers. Um, and for those who don't know, a lot of the Gulf Coast states and a lot of the major oil exporters in the Middle East are highly dependent on foreign labor that they import to do a lot of their work. And then they use that to finance their welfare states so that their people don't have to do much. So Oman is seeking to reduce its dependence on foreign workers by improving its education system and training up a domestic labor force, a high-skilled domestic labor force. So pretty smart move, I should say. And we'll see the effectiveness of that in the future. Um, Germany, Poland, and Sweden have expelled Russian diplomats in response to Russia's expulsion of their diplomats a week ago during... uh, a little over a week ago during the summit between uh, Joseph Borrell and Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister. Uh, Joseph Borrell is the EU's uh, minister of foreign affairs. And the Russians re- expelled these diplomats while that meeting was going on. So it's a bit of a smack in the face to the EU. So they've done a tit for tat now. And I guess relations are, I wouldn't say deteriorating, but more so the politics is catching up with where relations already are between Russia and the EU. So, and we'll talk a little bit about that on the Russian side later on. The EU is a bit distracted right now with their internal politics. Um, so we'll move on. Uh, as India, their President Modi has reached out to the farmers' protesters uh, for talks and negotiations. Um, For those who do not know, I'll give a brief update, as we haven't talked about it in a while. There have been a massive protest by farmers who were in the northeast of the country, uh, the part that is kind of close to China. They were in the northeast. Uh, Modi was planning on a bill that would um, privatize a lot of the land, to kind of increase productivity, the farmers took issue, and then they marched to the capital. They got into a couple skirmishes with police, and now he's reaching out for them to for talks and negotiations. So, peaceful resolutions to peaceful protest. Always like to see it. Qatar seeks to build on the French initiative to build a new Lebanese government to end the country's long and insanely complicated civil war. Uh, many of you know about the bombing that happened in Beirut. Um, looked like a whole atomic bomb went off in the city. But um, France, after that, kind of stepped in as Lebanon was a former French colony. All of Syria used to be as well. But um, France stepped in and tried to kind of establish order there. They had to go. They kind of left it uh, unfinished. And now Qatar is stepping in to... And as I said, they're trying to build on that French initiative to put together a new Lebanese government and potentially end the country's civil war. 
uh, a decent op uh, an observation I've noticed is that uh, that's kind of the solution to a lot of the civil wars around the country around the world, where you have these two sides that have been fighting for a while, and then foreign powers step in and try to establish a new government uh, to end the fighting. But another trend that goes along with that is the, the very low likelihood of those things succeeding. But I guess we'll just have to see where things go. So anyway, while we're still kind of talking about France, uh, there was a peace agreement in Mali that was reached earlier this week. Uh, this was an effort largely spearheaded by France to end the fighting between Mali and the insurgents that were rebelling in the north and were overtaken by an Islamic branch um, that kind of co-opted their movement. And France has been helping Mali fight them for a while. So now there's a peace agreement that's been reached. Not a peace deal, but an agreement and towards peace. So there's that. 12.4 million people are reportedly foods insecure in Syria. Uh, humanitarian crisis on top of humanitarian crisis. Russia now seeking to establish more formal relations with Japan, but is unwilling to cede sovereignty over the southern Kuril Islands. And to kind of give an exa a rundown of where that is, it's the island chain running from northern Japan up to the Kamchatka Peninsula in Russia's Far East. And for those having a hard time, it's the part of Russia that's right next to Alaska. It looks like a butcher knife that's pointing toward Japan. Uh, and this is in the wake of the Lavrov meeting with Borel. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, that is the rapid fire news. And I guess now, should we transition into the meat? Ah, we'll do a segment of the meat before we go for break. We have the Amman 21 drills. Uh, this is an international anti-piracy drill that was conducted in the Arabian Sea, the body of water directly southeast of Arabian Peninsula. Now, this drill featured the naval presences of Russia, Japan, Turkey, the United States, China, and the UK. Oh, and Pakistan. Okay, can't forget Pakistan. The drills also included anti-terror operations as well as a mine-clearing practice for certain naval vessels. And my takeaway is it's nice to see all these countries coming together to work on piracy. We'll see if any of them uh, hold true to that anti-piracy position moving forward, but I'd imagine most of them will. But what we have here and this is one of the things I noticed, is we have a who's who of the major powers, um, with, very, with a few exceptions. Notably, France, Germany, Italy, and India were not present, but um, I believe Italy... Well, actually, no, I don't really know why uh, Italy and France weren't there. I can kind of give an excuse as to why Germany and India weren't. Pakistan hates India. Uh, and the port of Karachi was like a focal point of the drills. And that's in Pakistan. So obviously Pakistan doesn't want India anywhere near their soil. Um, and Germany... Uh, I don't know what to say about Germany. As far as Italy and France go, however, to my knowledge, they both have... Uh, 
and naval bases in Djibouti, uh, specifically for anti-piracy operations. So it seems a bit odd that they didn't participate, but I digress. Although a major takeaway from this is that powers that we think are completely at odds with one another can come together when it suits them. And I guess that's a central theme of geopolitics. That's what makes this field so interesting. You never know what they're going to do. But um, it'll be interesting to see how the major powers continue to interact with one another as we move forward and the balances of power start to change. Um, especially as the COVID crisis begins to die down around the world through mass vaccination efforts. Uh, and governments are once again free to pursue foreign ambitions. And a lot of them are going to find themselves in desperate situations due to demographic pressures. And we'll see what they do. And we'll get into the... Hmm, what do we, what we got? We have Russia and the Philippines coming up next uh, in just a minute. Alright, we're back. And we talked a little bit. Well, I kept talking about how we were going to come back to the South China Sea, and now here we are. We're going to talk about the Philippines for a little bit, and how they're expanding their navy in response to the Chinese navy attacking their fishermen. Um, the context for this being that uh, last year, late last year, China's new defense law took effect. And it gave a number of more powers, a number of powers f during wartime... <laughs> And kind of semi-peacetime to the Chinese government and their military. And if, which they gave, quote-unquote, gave China jurisdiction over a whole lot of issues uh, pertaining to China's territory. Now, what might those issues be? Uh, Taiwan, the Himalayas, the South China Sea, a whole, a whole lot. East China Sea. A whole lot of territorial things. Um, and the reason that's important is because China has a lot of disputed territory. So, this creating a lot of problems, and this is one of them. I'll get into why this is important in the, later on. But, well, I guess I'll... Ex <laughs> I, I wasn't looking at my notes. We're going to explain why it's extremely relevant right now. Um, this is extremely relevant. Given the multiple border disputes that China is currently in. Now that of course includes the South China Sea. Which encompasses a lot of their neighbors. Their maritime neighbors. And the reason it's a big dispute is because China has laid claim to darn near the entire sea. The entire body of water. Um, they have this thing called the Nine Dash Line. And it lays out their claim, and they they really stretch those lines on the map. So if there's nine of them, and it takes up almost the entire South China Sea. And of, to the shock of many, their neighbors have issues with that. Vietnam has issues. The Philippines has issues. Malaysia, Brunei, and Indonesia have all have Indo all have issues with China's claims. And, of course, China has issues with their counterclaims, uh, whom they view as illegitimate, which I guess is the feeling is mutual. Everyone feels that everyone else's claims are illegitimate, 
but the difference being that China has the ability to project power. Um, and so they were. They were building islands, artificial islands, in the South China Sea. <clears throat> and then they started building bases on them. Some of them they put civilian housing on and put people there. Um, China even went as far as proclaiming that they had the right to attack quote-unquote intruders within their territory. Um, and obviously, that's going to create problems when the territory in question is disputed with other people. So this is shaking up the region more than it already was when China started laying down artificial islands in the sea. And um, I guess here we have a dimension to the region's geopolitical standoff that I figured could happen, but it seemed like it wouldn't happen, and well, now it is happening. Um, that dimension is an arms race between strategic competitors and probably economic competitors too in the not-so-distant future. We talked about the Cold War between China and India and how it could lead. Actually, I don't even think I've covered too much on how it could lead to an arms race. Um, I covered more so the sides and the lines in the sand and the alliances that get drawn up between the two and the advantages that the two would have. But even then, I never really covered the potential for the arms race and that component to the competition. Um, and here we have the arms race is kind of beginnings with the smaller powers who are threatened by the bigger power, which in this case is China. India doesn't have too much of a presence in the South China Sea, which makes China the big power that other nations here are afraid of. And now, um, this is pretty, this is a pretty big thing. Um, I brought up economic competitors too in the not so distant future. And the reason I brought them up rather than just strategic competitors is because militaries cost money. Uh, bigger economies can afford bigger militaries. Navies are pretty expensive, even if they're not long range. But again, bigger economies can afford bigger navies. Or at the very least, a more robust navy with more capabilities. And in this region, any military funding is almost destined for the navy, just due to the geography. Because we have island nations, like, of course, obviously the Philippines. Taiwan is an island nation. Indonesia is an island nation. Vietnam has a really long coastline. And its borders with everyone else are jungle. Um, so there's the only ones, the only country that could really invade them per se would be China, unless they were gonna, unless someone was trying to fight a guerrilla campaign on Vietnamese soil. Um, which means Vietnam has the potential, great potential for a navy. Cambodia, uh, Thailand, Malaysia has a really long coastline, and they're separated. Uh, Malaysia is like split up into two pieces. One is on is right next to Singapore and the Straits of Malacca. The other one is on the biggest island in Indonesia, the northern piece. 
So there's lots of coastline to protect for all of the people involved and their physical borders, their land borders with their neighbors, if they have any, are rugged terrain, which means you don't need massive armies, unless you're Vietnam, in which case you might want a decently large army to fight China in the event that they try to invade you again. But the point here is that armies aren't necessarily the key point of interest for any military doing a build-up period in this region. The Navy will be the point of interest, and we have the Philippines beginning their, well, their naval build-up. Now, that being said, I don't expect any carriers slash supercarriers or battleships to be made by the powers here, except for China and Japan, who already have carriers. The Japanese have really big carriers. The Chinese just got some carriers, and they're building their own now. Um, those are the two powers I expect to have carriers. And the reason being for that is that everyone else doesn't need those kinds of vessels for this kind of dispute. Um, and I'll explain. China is the aggressor here with territorial claims that stretch far away from its coastline. So, therefore, China needs to be able to project power far away. It could use a carrier. Japan is an island. It doesn't really need much in the way of an army, so it's going to need a navy, and if it wants to fight anybody, it's going to be it's going to need projection capability. It's also relatively far away from the South China Sea, which means it, its navy will need to project power. Therefore, it is more likely to have a carrier, or more likely to need a carrier, I should say, than, say, Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, Indonesia, or Brunei. They are all very close to the South China Sea, uh, and their territorial claims are also close to home, which means they, unlike China and Japan, they don't need to project power. They can focus on defense and defending territory that's close to home, where they can use and deploy land-based assets to assist in that defense. Now this means lighter, cheaper, short-range vessels will do just fine in defending their coastline. And this is excellent considering that they have that they have smaller economies than Japan or China. So they can technically compete so long as they're fighting the battles that they choose in their waters that they are disputing with China. China has to go far away from their coastline, which means they need projection capability. Japan, if it fights anybody in its neighborhood, has to go far away from its coastline. It needs projection capability. So, these nations here, like the Philippines, they don't need that. And, again, this is going to be great for them, considering they don't have economies the size of China. But they can still fight back in the event that it ever comes down to that, because their neighbors are going to be cheaper. They're going to be designed differently.
because they're going to be for different purposes. Defense rather than power projection. Now, there's also the foreign navy question uh, for the, re the regional players here to deal with. And the list of no those navies includes the UK, Australia, India, and the US. Uh, the UK has its Queen Elizabeth class supercarrier en route to the South China Sea. And the U.S. just sent two carrier battle groups to the South China Sea as well. Now, that last uh, side note, that last one bothers me. Uh, personal politics, isolationism and all, you know, beautiful stuff that I'm being denied. <laughs> but um, my personal politics aside, this region is a flashpoint for a reason. Um, and it's starting to look more and more like a powder keg. Um... And uh, I know it might be a bit harder to see the powder keg right now, but what do you think is going to happen as other countries start to build up their navies as well? Um, in obvious response to the major threat that China poses to them. Now, again, I'll tie it back to what I've talked about when I brought up the Cold War between China and India. These countries interface and are dependent on China economically, they don't, they don't have much problem doing that. They don't mind interacting with China economically. But they don't like interacting with China militarily. They would prefer a military strategic alliance with India rather than a strategic alliance with China. They distrust China more than other powers. And that means any advance the Chinese military makes they're going to respond in kind. It's kind of a multi-layered Cold War rather than two separate blocks that don't interact with one another like we saw with the US-Soviet Cold War. It's not like that. There's layers to it, which makes it all the more complex. But that's, a, that's an important layer to focus on, the difference and the separation of economics and military. Because, well, again... They don't mind dealing with China with their economy. They don't mind having economic ties to China, but they will not have military ties to China, at least for the time being. I'll stress that the Philippines is still a wild card in this, along with Indonesia as well. But no one here wants to have the Chinese army on their soil. That's, that's just that. They would rather have Japan or India come. And the Japan part is really important because Japan used to occupy them all during the Second World War. They would rather have Japan as an ally than deal with China because Japan is an island and they'll go away. China has a border and they're not going anywhere. So back to the point I was making, what do you think happens as more countries here start to build up their navies? The Philippines is just the start. China is still building up its navy. Um, and in terms of number of vessels, they've already exceeded the number of ships in the U.S. Pacific Fleet, I believe. So there's already that. So the threat is there. And the fact that China is closer, a lot closer to the South China Sea than the U.S. is, means that these countries here are going to start to respond to the things that China does, because even if America wanted to, say, have an all-out battle with China, China outnumbers the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and it would still take time 
for the other American fleets, it would take months for them to cross the other oceans to get here, to this region, which means that these countries, Malaysia, Vietnam, the Philippines, and Indonesia, and Brunei, they're going to need to think about their defense, and that's going to come with the Navy, and you're going to start to see more and more of them start building up their Navy, and that's going to cause other countries to respond, because another thing to, to keep in mind is that they don't necessarily trust each other either. They have counterclaims with China, but they also have counterclaims with each other. They have overlapping claims with each other. It's not like everybody versus China, although it may seem that way whenever China steps into the room. They don't trust each other all that much either. Now again, um, they don't mind trade deals, as we can see with the number of trade deals. Um, we had RCEP recently, and you had ASEAN before that. They don't mind trade, but they don't really like each other enough to have each to have military presences in each other's countries. They don't like each other enough for that. So that's another important thing to take note of as countries start this buildup of navy, um, buildup of their navies, because it's not just China who's going to take note of that, and it may not just be China who's going to catch the wrong end of that buildup. It could be their other neighbors, too, which could cause a mutual and mutual arms race and arms buildup between the smaller powers and other smaller powers, not even just them in China. So, and another important detail to pay attention to, and why, that's kind of the key reason why I've turned our attention toward the Philippines and their naval buildup, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a ripple effect. Now, we'll have to keep our eyes on this corner of the world, uh, or else it'll explode while we're not looking. But now, we'll segment into, well, we'll segue into Russia. We talked a little bit about Russia last episode. I brought up the meeting between Sergei Lavrov and the EU Minister of Foreign Affairs, Joseph Borrell. Uh, a little o this meeting happened a little over a week ago. I didn't give it m the attention that I believe it deserved in last week's episode as I hadn't had the chance to actually sit down and watch their meeting, although, because I, I felt it was important to watch the whole thing. Now, I covered how he called the EU an unreliable partner. It was kind of the snippets from that leaked out from the conversation. and But he also talked about some other things. Um, he laid out his view of the EU's hypocrisy, comparing their trade sanctions to Cuba to Russia's sanctions on Ukraine. He also bashed the EU over the head with the Catalonia issue when uh, Borrell brought up the Navalny protests and his concerns regarding them. So it's kind of, it's a tit for tat here. And the EU is also finding itself on the losing side in this exchange with Russia. Although this is an exchange of words rather than um, real diplomatic action. But basically, to sum up, what um, Lavrov f uh, kind of conveyed in his meeting with Borrell, um, 
basically he's saying that the EU is going to need to get their life together before real progress can be made in EU Russian relations. And then I guess he's right on that. The EU is kind of all over the place right now, uh, especially with regards to Russia. They they hate it and love it at the same time. They don't like Russia diplomatically, but they love it economically. They love Russian natural gas. They kind of don't know. They know where they stand until they don't. <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. And um, but he ba- again. I'll go back. He said that the EU is kind of gonna need to get their life together to make real progress between EU and Russia. Now he didn't say that out his mouth, but that's what you gather watching this. Um, because he kind of makes it a point to call out points of hypocrisy, at least from his point of view, and whether or not the institution that is the EU will even have the time to do this, and that is, you know, collect themselves, that's already in question. And I'll point to none other than the perpetual secession crisis that I've talked so extensively about. And my, kind of my first geopolitical, um, kind of, is it my first? Or would the Nagorno-Karabakh situation be my first? Oh, well, the EU perpetual secession crisis is one of my first predictions in geopolitics to come true. And it's already here. Um, and it's really, really, I talked about this in the first segment, it's really screwing them over because they just, they can't win. They can't win. They're stuck in this unwinnable situation. And they're trying. They're, they really are trying to hold themselves together. And fight this tide of Euroscepticism that keeps rising and rising in Europe. Um, and they're just stuck on the back foot. They can't get ahead. And I, I can only imagine how infuriating that must be if you're an EU politician. And if you're pro-EU. Uh, if you're paying attention to all this. And it just seems like uh, you can't win. I can only imagine how frustrating that must be. Um, and well, maybe they'll get over it, maybe they can't, it seems more and more like they won't be able to, especially as Euroscepticism is on the rise, and not even just like at low percentages and on the rise, but like already close to critical mass to where more countries could leave if a vote was held. That's where we are, that's where we are when we talk about Euroscepticism is on the rise. We're talking about starting from that point. It's on the rise, which is really bad for the EU. Now, we'll move on back to Russia. Uh, Whether or not the EU will get their stuff together to have a rapprochement with Russia. Hopefully they can, but they'll have to hold together in order to do so. But um, back to Lavrov. Interestingly, he put an emphasis on Russian self-sufficiency. And he does acknowledge that Russia has a self-sufficient military industry. And he also goes on to say that he wants the same for the civilian economy. And anyone watching Russia knows that they are self-sufficient in military. Although he did bring up uh, issues regarding components and manufacturers. So like the pieces that go together to make the finished product. He talked about that in his... um, 
meeting with Boro. But my thing is that if he wants self-sufficiency in the civilian economy, and I'd imagine Putin and the rest of the Russian leadership would as well, if they want that, well, this is inevitably going to lead to a question of Russia's demographics, from my point of view. Um, And that is because young people consume. Young people are great for growing an economy because they consume. They buy a lot of things. They They take loans. They do a lot just existing that is great for the economy. They drive to work. They have kids. They go to school. And, well... They do a lot of low-level work because they're just entering the workforce. They are very great for an economy. And if Russia wants self-sufficiency, or if any country really wants self-sufficiency in their economy, you're going to need lots of young people to consume what you produce. Otherwise, you'll have to export more and more. So, this question of self-sufficiency in the civilian economy... Um, you know, to kind of uh, mirror what they've done with the military industry. If they want this, they're gonna inevitably come in. They're gonna inevitably have to come to terms with Russia's demography, which isn't very good. They are making recovery efforts. Um, their abortion rate went down significantly when they paid women to keep their children, and to my knowledge, they haven't repealed that policy. So we could be seeing Russia on the path towards demographic recovery in the future. Although, given how bad their demographics are to begin with, it's probably going to take them longer than Hungary. Unless they start copying Hungary uh, in the near future. But, um, they're going to have to answer this question. Because, well, you're going to need young people and better to start now than later. Because it takes a while for young people to grow up into young adults who you need to consume products and to become your future tax base. And, well, young people go into the military, so you'll need them if you want an army, too. It's a number of things that they're going to have to look at if they really, really, really want this self-sufficiency or near self-sufficiency in their economy. So we could be seeing genuine, like a a hard focus from the Russian government on children and giving birth in the near future, especially with their um, renewed emphasis on Christianity, specifically Eastern Orthodox, Um, the Orthodox Church there, they're Orthodox. It's a branch of Christianity, um, a little different from what I have, but Christianity nonetheless. So there's that. And we could be seeing Russia uh, also be a mid to late century rising power whenever their demographics recover. I believe their demographics will have the chance to recover before the rest of Western Europe, um, mainly because they're actually trying now to recover their their demography. Uh, Hungary is already on the path towards demographic recovery. Um, we'll we'll just have to see where everything goes because demography takes a long time to bear fruit. 
But again, it all comes back to the relative power of nations. If y Even if you're doing bad, if everyone else is doing worse, then you're, relatively speaking, stronger. <laughs> relatively speaking, you're okay. And in the meantime, though, Russia still has lots of excess power that they can live off of and kind of metabolize as they try to recover their demography. So, but... Again, that recovery effort's going to have to start in earnest if they want to speed it up. But I'll digress. Lots of things to look forward to in the future, and even the far future, as we the geopolitical landscape evolves and changes. But if there's one thing we know, it's that uh, the world is changing. But, haha, it's not the end just yet. I have a closing segment, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Alright everyone, we're going to start to close up the show here. We covered quite a lot. Quite a lot. Uh, seeing deterioration of relations between a lot of the major powers. Um, and, well, lots of long-term trends that we'll have to pay attention to. We see an arms race beginning. Um the very, very, very early stages of the arms race in the South China Sea, which could spiral into a bigger naval build-out as countries compete for bigger or better navies. Common sense doesn't always win out in an arms race. We'll have to see where they go. We'll see what India does. Maybe this will give them the opportunity to finally become a major naval power, which India's geography should support but they're usually distracted by incursions on their land borders by China and Pakistan. But if they find themselves increasingly invested in the, what goes on in the South China Sea, they could start to build up a navy worthy of the name, especially their, as their economy grows. They could find more and more funding for said navy. You see lots of things going on Lots of dimensions to keep track of with regards to foreign relations with other countries. Um, lots of weird place finding countries in lots of weird places, um, and working with weird, uh, weird partners. I mean, I mean, come on now, who who would have thought that America and China would be doing America, China, and Russia would be doing joint drills? in the Arabian Sea, like, come on now, if I, if you didn't know anybody, you'd say that these people hated each other, but, uh, I guess the hate isn't as strong as we are led to believe, as we can work together on issues we care about, and I guess we just won't on issues we don't care about, but <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it there, but, um, yeah, I guess that's it for today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. And, as I was saying before, the world is changing, folks. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So, till we meet again next Monday, Servus. Servus.